Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer in episode 255 of the Speaking Club podcast. To kick off the show this week, I've got some wisdom from the incomparable Ozzy Osbourne. I have a genuine love affair with my audience. When I'm on stage, they're not privileged to see me. It's a privilege for me to see them. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hello, I hope you're having a fantastic week. I had a very fun start to my week because on Monday we had our first choreography session for my new show. Uh, The new play, which premieres in May, is about two huge music hall and vaudeville stars from over 120 years ago. And it's got quite a few song and dance numbers in. And so we're getting some choreographers in to help us sort those dances out. And so I arrived for the session on Monday thinking I was relatively fit and had a decent level of dance ability. And I left feeling like Homer Simpson at a Zumba class. It's amazing how quickly your body loses coordination when you're actively thinking about moving it, especially your arms when your legs are moving at the same time. Anyway, we've got a lot of work to do. And uh, if you wanted to follow along with the journey of bringing this new show to life and have a laugh at us, then you can follow Lemon Squeeze Productions on Instagram and Facebook. But let's crack on with this show, which I know you are going to love. Now, in my opinion, great speakers do two things better than other people. They create content that is designed to connect with their audience where they are and engage that audience in new and compelling possibilities for their future. And they deliver it in a way that builds rapport entertains and motivates them to take the next step. And the truth is though, whilst the way they do these things might be different, authors also have to accomplish the same things in their books. And that's where my guest today comes in. Because Anjanza is a non-fiction book coach and the author of multiple award-winning books on writing, including The Writer's Process and writing to be understood. Now, Anne's fascinated by human behaviour and cognitive science. She's a bit of a geek, she'll admit it herself. And she's always looking for clues about how we can communicate more effectively. And obviously, she's passionate about writing and communicating too. And in this show, Anne and I are discussing her transformative ideas for writers and how these concepts can also apply in the world of speaking. So whether you want to become a more powerful writer or speaker, this show is something you won't want to miss. And we're going to head over to that interview right now. Welcome to the Speaking Club and Janza. Thanks for having me, Sarah. I'm delighted to be here. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, you came to my attention because someone that I've been working with recommended you and the your book to me. And when I looked into you, I found that there's very, very similar sort of approaches to things for different mediums. And I thought I must get you on the podcast. But what I want to find out, first of all, is what made you passionate about what you do today? Ah, so, you know, I've written my whole life and career. I learned it in college and I was doing it for, um, you know, I was doing it as part of my job, but I always thought of it as a skill that you learn and you kind of get good at or whatever. Um, And what really unlocked it for me was when I thought about it more, the realization that, of course, writing is human 
communication, it's human connection. And so really the question is, how do we do this from a psychological perspective, right? We've learned so much about how the brain works and how we work in the last few decades. I took a lot of psychology in, in college, but it was almost at the time, I'm dating myself, it was all about abnormalities. You know, it was a little bit about developmental, but it was either you were a baby or you were messed up. Uh, and so the, the point is we've learned so much about how the strange and mysterious ways that our brains work in the last um, few decades, cognitive science. And although we still have much to learn, obviously, um, that opens up a whole raft of really, really interesting questions. Like, given what we know about creativity, how should I structure my writing life? Or um, given what do we know about how the mind processes metaphors? And how should I use that in my writing? How is that relevant to me? Or what do we know about what happens when we listen to or read a story? What do we know about that? And then how does that affect my writing? So this just un opened up this door of fascinating inquiry and experimentation. And this is what really fires me up in everything that I do in, in book coaching or in the books that I write. Um, fundamentally being able to make people connect with each other more effectively, connect with each other more deeply through the written word, much the way that you try to connect with people through speaking. Um, that is what, you know, fires me up. And that's why I'm excited about it. Why am I excited about writing? <laughs> that's it. So it's almost like two worlds colliding because you do call yourself a sort of neuroscience geek. Um, what was the first thing when you when you looked into this neuroscience stuff, what was the first thing that gave you a huge aha about the connection with writing? So the very first thing was, I had been spent decades as a freelance writer working for different companies, and I developed all my little systems and things that worked. I knew that I could just think about an idea and go to the rowing machine at the gym and I would have a breakthrough on whatever it was. And I thought, wow, I have a really weird, I'm a really weird person, right? <laughs> I can't tell anyone this. They're going to think you're nuts. And, and you, you, you hear writers who talk about, you know, ideas floating and inspiration, and the muse and the gods. And I'm like, okay, I see why people do this. Um, and when I read about incubation and, you know, that as a process in the brain, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm not a freak. This is actually what everybody does. You know? And I wonder what else is going on. So that was kind of the unlocking thing for me when I was looking inside at the process of writing and the things that got in my way, you know, a while ago, there was less writing about the imposter syndrome, but I certainly read about it. And it's like, oh, okay, this is something that inhibits people. And that's really interesting. So applying the insights to my own life was what first got me interested in that. And then of course I said, wait, 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 you know, I'm talking about myself as the writer, but what really matters is the reader, right? It, well, they both matter because if you don't write anything, then it's irrelevant. But um, I'm also really, really interested in the reader's brain and understanding how to land with my ideas there. Absolutely. Okay. And well, that's a perfect segue into my next question, which is, you advocate that a writer needs to understand the reader's needs and context. And I wondered if you could explain a bit more about that. Sure. Um, writing isn't done when it's on the page and you hit publish. It's not, it's not done its work yet. It's just something on the page or on the screen. Um, your writing succeeds or fails in the reader's, in the reader's experience, not not in what you've done. You can't point at the page and say, that's great. What matters is how somebody reads it. Um, and I, you know, this is true of speaking too. You, you can grow up, you can rehearse a speech, just polish it, timing, delivery, everything. And then you go give it in the wrong room, right? It's not going to be a good speech. It's not, you know, you go and give it to a pipe fitters union and it was about, uh, you know, something entirely different gardening. You know, it's just not going to be, not going to land. Um, so the same is absolutely true of writing. What's what's harder for writers sometimes? Um, first of all, no one's telling us who's in the room. You know, we can't ask the, the organizers, tell me exactly who's going to be in the room. Um, and we're not there in real time to see 
to see what uh, their reactions. If you're speaking and you hear a lot of coughs, you're like, ruh row, I'm losing them, right? You know, you know, you you have clues. I'm gonna pick up the tempo or I'm gonna be more energetic. And we don't have that in writing. Uh, so it takes a consistent focus on the audience through the process to keep us honest. I refer to this as the idea of servant authorship, which is that we are writing to serve our readers with a specific for a specific purpose. And when we keep this front and center, um, it keeps us away from our worst tendencies, which is to be sort of self-indulgent and say, you know, look at all this stuff I know. Um, so servant authorship, focusing on the reader, this is really the key to good writing, much that much the way that focusing on your audience and why they're sitting there in that chair is essential to good speaking. It's just a, it's, there's so many parallels and interesting parallels between writing and speaking. Um, we can Absolutely. And one, one of the things that I say to my speakers, um, and quite often I get authors come who've written a book and then want to do a talk about the book. I think it would probably apply to authors writing their books as well, but I'll check in with you. But what I say is you've always got to be, in a sense, one step ahead of your audience. So if you pose a question in the book, you need to be thinking, if I say this, what's their likely, what are they likely to be thinking? What questions come up for them? You know, um, how is this going to land with them? And I need to address that because if I don't, it becomes a distraction. Um, yes. so they can't hit they can't move on or it sends them down another rabbit hole is that similar to to how you mean in terms of the reader's context yes yeah that's certainly part of it you need to understand what they're bringing to it what what questions you're arising uh, that what questions you're prompting with with yeah. what you're saying um absolutely as part of it I mean I think that the most underrated writing skill is empathy you know and you know, I in this day of chatbots and AI generated writing, they don't have empathy. They can't put themselves in a human perspective, and we need to do that. That is fundamentally one of our, our one of our strengths and one of the, the beauties of writing. Um, so sometimes it's hard to do. You know, it's really really hard to get out of your own head. And in, in writing, we have the beauty of revision. It's such a gift. It's, I'm sorry you don't have that in speaking. Um, <laughs> we have revision. You can't say, oh, just rewind. Forget I said that thing. I'm going to fix this. You know? But in writing, we can. So I really advocate to readers that you, to, to I really advocate to writers. See, I, I, I'm just trying to revise myself. I really, <laughs> I, you can tell I'm a writer. I really advocate to writers that you break the writing into its component pieces. And you get out what you need to get out. And then you come at, so you you can't bring the reader in so early that it's going to confuse your creative process. You just sometimes have to let messy, ugly, terrible stuff down. And then you come back and you start looking at it. Well, how, what does the reader need from this? And how am I going to take this back? And you get to revise uh, and you revise your outline that way. And you revise your draft that way. It's kind of a, a back and forth. You kind of inhibit two personas as you work. Um, and sometimes it's hard to understand everything the reader might be seeing, in which case, obviously, an, an editor of some kind is going to be super helpful for you, giving you other outside of your own head perspectives, because it's really hard to get out. We live in our heads. It's really, really hard to get outside of them. <laughs> That's really interesting. And it's really interesting that you talked about those dual sort of personalities. I talk in, in my work about the creator and the critic, and uh, and how you really they're brilliant parts of our personality one's like the child the the sort of creator the playful the innovative the ideas um and then the other side of us is the editor the logic the reasoning the the parent and they're brilliant but they don't work well together so I yes. talk about separating them physically even is that something you advocate as well absolutely my my first writing book was called the writer's process and I talk about the muse and the scribe essentially um. the creator and the critic but the scribe being that disciplined one that gets it done um and I think that a lot of the secret to writing is to knowing first of all where you where you fall. I think ten, people tend to be stronger in one or the other of those uh, yes. perspectives. And so having a little bit of self-awareness of that is really useful because if, if like the muse or the creator is running the show, 
you know, you in writing, what happens is you have a lot of unfinished drafts all around you. Nothing gets published, <laughs> uh, you know, and I meet writers like this all the time. <laughs> I have 10 vowels going. I've never, never finished one. 10 stories, never contributed one. Um, or then the scribe, which is, you know, I, I can just give me an assignment and I'll, I'll do it. You know, I may not be inspired, but I'll get it done. Um, and the real key is to figure out who gets, who's in control at each phase of the process. And eventually they learn to give each other some space, respect each other, you know, work together. Um, and that is, you know, that's, that's the secret to writing. I was working with a writer just a, a, a couple yesterday, actually, I was on the phone with someone and we were just breaking apart her process as she was working on some blog posts. And I very much did this. I wasn't talking about the muse and the scribe. I was saying, no, this phase, this is what you're doing. She gets back on the phone call with me yesterday and she says, that's the first time I've ever enjoyed writing. I'm like, I'm retiring now. I'm done. <laughs> yeah, but that's it, so much of the angst we get over writing is trying to do it all at once. Yeah. You can't, you know, we just, it's too complicated. Break it up. Absolutely. Yeah. That's brilliant. Okay. Um, next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is a term that I saw you use was cognitive load. Now, I think I know what it is, and I think I talk about it slightly differently, but what is cognitive load in your world, and why should writers care about it? It is essentially the burden that we are putting on the reader's prefrontal cortex, the, the, the part of their brain that's disciplined, that's sitting there doing the work, that's managing all the abstractions and all of that. Um, and more specifically, I mean, more specifically, psychologists talk about working memory and the, the really small limits of working memory. And I'm sure everyone can relate to perhaps in, in school, college, reading a textbook and you're reading and you find that you've been looking at the same, like two, three cent paragraphs have gone by, you have no idea what they said. You know, it's like, what happened there? Uh, you overloaded your cognitive, too much cognitive burden and you just like checked out. But you kept reading because you were a diligent student, right? <laughs> what happens today if somebody's reading something, a blog post, and they they get that little overload, they'll just click away. Um, you know, they'll, they'll put down the book that you know they don't have to keep their eyes going over it. Yeah, you've lost them. Yeah, I like to use it. Um, if I can just take a minute to share a little thought experiment. So here's a thought experiment: reading something is like a little gambling game, right? You've got a little handful of chips in your hand and you show up to your computer. Let's just talk about blog posts. All right, let's make it simple, blog posts. You've got a handful of chips, right? And maybe you're playing with them the way that, you know, gamblers know to play with their chips. Um, so you're going to read a post. So you, you ante in one, you toss one chip in to read the post just to open it up, start reading. Now, as you read, certain things are going to happen that are going to cost you chips. Let's say you run into a word that's unfamiliar, but you can figure it out from the context. That's a chip, toss that in there. You run into a word you don't know at all, can't really quite figure out, that's two chips, right? Um, uh, other things, there's some really long complicated sentences and the verb comes at the end, uh, that's a chip. You know, because it took you some work, you had to listen, you had to hold that beginning in, the, in your head until you got to the end. So all these are slowly eroding the pile of chips in your hand, but sometimes you, get this idea you, you read an idea and it's like oh that resonates that's a that's a two chip idea that resonates um something makes you smile or laugh you get you get a couple chips back um something piques your curiosity that's a chip you're getting something back right so we have this dynamic exchange of energy going on between the reader and the piece uh, and to some extent it's not a bad metaphor for what's happening with the reader's energy with the reader's attention um, as they're working through your work. And, but here's the thing. You may have 10 readers and this person shows up with a huge pile of, you know, a hundred chips. You can write as dense as you want. You can give them legal prose. What the heck? They're going to read it because they have a hundred chips. They're not going to run out. This person starts with three. If they've spent all their chips before they get anything back, game over, they're done. They're just walking away. You don't know how much attention your reader has when they approach something that you're writing. You don't know where they're coming from. Um, and so it's really important that we not unnecessarily impose 
this cognitive burden or this cognitive load on the reader. We want them to spend their brain cycles thinking about our ideas and not sledging through our words. It's it's just you're wasting their attention and you're going to lose, you know, game over for a certain number of people if you do that. So that's that's what my metaphor, my little thought experiment for cognitive load. I absolutely love that. And and definitely, you know, it applies in speaking as well. I talk about this concept of the croc brain, the reptile brain, which you might have heard of, um, which is that every bit of information first goes through that. And part of its job is around energy conservation. And if things are too difficult, it will just, it's like a bounce. It will go, nope, move on. And unless it's, unless it's, dangerous curious or whatever so very similar you know you've and and there is this sort of dance with the audience as well which is slightly a bit further on in terms of you know which is building on that but keeping them engaged all the way through and getting energy back from them as well obviously the writer doesn't get that but the speaker does <laughs> but that exchange is even more important when you're speaking <laughs> It's 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 critical when you're speaking because it's a it's a live performance. So this is happening. Um, but I think we forget that sometimes when we're writing, we think, oh, I have all the time in the world. I'm going to just, you know, spend three hours slowly easing into why the person might have picked up this article. Um, my favorite example of this, I had a client once, um, this is years ago when I was freelance writing, and they showed me great with great pride this white paper they'd written, and it was very dense and really hard to sludge through. And on page 50 of this thing. They said, and this, you know, is that you use this technique to get over this huge security flaw. I'm like, wait, why is this not on page one? No one's going to read the 50 pages if you don't tell them Everybody. why. What are you thinking? <laughs> Talk about burying the lead. Anyhow, um, that's an extreme case. And yet we all kind of do that. We, we, you know, we, part of it's an artifact of the way that we learn to write um, or, you know, we were taught you know, do your five cent paragraph structure, or we, we warm ourselves up in writing by kind of revving out, you know, the phrases and things that get things going and we forget to edit them out. You know, that's, absolutely, uh, yeah. that's brilliant. I, I, I love that thought experiment. That's a really nice way of putting it. Um, excellent. Okay. We might've touched on this, but I think it's worth looking at uh, and seeing if that's the case. What's the reader's curiosity sweet spot? Can you share a bit more about that? Yes. So, so curiosity is one of those things that, you know, is a, is a winning thing, right? It, the chips come back at the, at the reader when they, when they are curious. Um, curiosity is often what gets people to click through in the first place. So it is definitely your ally as a speaker and as a writer, right? It, it's, this is the writer's curiosity is your friend and that's what we're trying to get. So I did a lot of research as I worked on the book writing to be understood. It's like, what is curiosity? <laughs> um, and there's a lot of competing theories on it, but there's a couple that are worth working with. One is that curiosity is happens when there's a gap between what you know, and you point out the gap towards what they want to know. So it's, it's, you create a gap and then you make them want to fill the gap. Right. And the other is, is it's um, just, the joy of learning you 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 point out this little you can learn this thing about this this thing and people are interested in that like the reason we read mysteries or something we want to puzzle through and figure out something and that can be fun um but i think that the most powerful one for us to think about the, the second one has to do with leading with the benefits and why if you lead with the benefit of why you want what are you going to learn what are we going to cover uh, but the first one of just giving people a little gap um to do that well, the gap has to be the right size. So this is the sweet spot. Um, if if someone was to ask me a compelling, intriguing question about particle physics, it wouldn't pique my curiosity because they really don't know anything at all about particle physics, right? They'd be like, yeah, go for it. Um, you know, I'm not going to click through and read that. Um, so we have to know enough. We have to feel like we're curious about something that we know something about and we can learn this extra thing. So for you, you know, if your group, you said, do you know the secret of how to handle a technical failure while you're giving a talk? Ooh, a secret. Well, I'm curious. Now, if you're a bunch of speakers, they're going to be very, very curious about that. 
Um, so the, the, the catch is how do you sort of keep giving people just that little gap and then fill it with your writing and give them the ah, aha moment. And if we go back to my thought experiment, that aha moment is like, a, oh, you know, the chips are coming in. I learned something. I got something, right? That's very satisfying, uh, very fulfilling. Uh, so the idea is we we often put curiosity in our headlines, right? If you think about traditional clickbait, you know, you won't believe what happened next. Let's not go there. Um, it's good to try to invoke a little curiosity, but in a longer piece of nonfiction work, you need to kind of keep those curiosity breadcrumbs going through without it looking manipulative. I mean, it can very easily look formulaic or manipulative. In the next chapter, you're going to read the surprising anecdote of somebody who did thus and such. Uh, I think you want to avoid that. Respect the reader. Never look like you're manipulating them. Just think, you know, there's a there's a really interesting thing that can happen if you do this too much. Let's let's talk about that. You know, I, there's ways to to do that gracefully. Um, but this keeps someone engaged, especially in a longer piece of work, uh, because again, those chips are always flying back and forth. You want to make sure people stay with you um, and get something from it and, and enjoy, enjoy the reading process. That's really the, the game. You want them to enjoy hearing you speak. You want them to enjoy reading what you write. That's brilliant. I love that. Um, uh, I'll, I'll use that. Again. The, the one that I talk about in, in relation to speaking and, and this, again, I love to, I feel like uh, this is me geeking out with you uh, as hopefully the audience is going to get benefits, but I'm enjoying having this chat with you anyway. So I talk about um, curiosity being a combination of, you know, on a chemical level, dopamine and no repine frame. So you've got dopamine, which is all about having your desire filled. And no repine frame is this chemical that's linked to sort of fear of missing out. So if you can, if you can, uh, curiosity combines both those things. So, you know, when you get Facebook notifications and stuff like that, it kicks in. So I love the way that you did it. Like, but, but making that gap the right size, that's, that's brilliant. I love that. It's interesting when I was writing, writing to be understood and researching this, I, I interviewed um, the author near Al who wrote Hooked which is about those technologies. Um, and he basically has this sort of hooked cycle of you, you know, what you, what you do. And he said, no, writing a book is very much the same thing. You want them to be hooked in, you know, it's, it's the, it's the, those, those chemical, the dopamine, all of those things you want to keep that going in a cycle as, as you, as you write and as they read, which is such an interesting way. I had never thought about, uh, you know, what, what does, what do Facebook notifications and writing have in common? But you know, there you go. That's there's a there's a link there, which is great. Yeah, uh, no, that's that's it's an interesting book, that one. Yeah. Um, excellent. Okay, cool. So now you work a lot with business book writers and mm -hmm. nonfiction nonfiction writers, yep. What's the biggest mistake that you see those nonfiction writers make in your experience? So it kind of comes back to one of the first things we talked about, which is servant authorship and really thinking about what people need. Um, with some frequency, people come to me with, if I'm engaging early in the process, with an enormous outline, right? And what they want to do is write everything they know about the topic. And, and this is you know, an important first phase of the ideation is to like, what is everything I know? I want to write a book on this topic, say that I speak on, right? So what's everything I might want to tell someone? So the danger is getting stuck in this is everything I want to write and just making that a universe of what they want to write. And it's not necessarily what the reader needs or wants. The question is, what does the reader need or want to read? Do they want a comprehensive tome on your topic? I mean, if you, you know, if you're writing a textbook, maybe that's the appropriate outline. But if you're writing a business book that you hope people will pick up, use and implement in their lives in a meaningful way, probably a comprehensive data dump from your brain is not going to be the right answer. You have to think about it. Um, and very often I work with people through this first ideation phase and we end up with something that's 
quite different than what they thought they were starting with. I mean, they come up there. I don't, I'm just asking questions. I'm just, you know, going back and forth and prompting them and challenging them. Um, and I think that that's really fun. And they come up with something that's very unique because anybody can, if there's, you know, 10 experts up there on the subject of, you know, say writing. Oh my goodness. Do you know how many books there are on writing? Ay, ay, ay. A lot. And they're wonderful. And I read books on writing and I love them. But, you know, you might ask, you might well ask, why the heck are you writing books on writing? Hasn't this subject been covered just a bit? True, it has. But I have my own unique approach to it. And I'm trying to reach a specific set of readers. And I keep experimenting with different, well, what might somebody need here? And how might I then approach it? Um, and that keeps the work fresh and it, it puts things out in the world that are different. Um, so I think the biggest, the number one biggest mistake is focusing too much on what you want without bringing in what does my core audience really need? And of course, the the prime error under that, that not that some people fall into is thinking of their audience as everyone. Of course, it, the audience is never everyone. So we always try to spend some time, but who really are we writing for? How how well can you picture them? How precise can you be in terms of articulating who that audience is? Because the 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 clearer you understand your audience, the more you can pull on all of your innate human communication skills, the the things you know, the empathy. You you can't tap into empathy if you're writing for everybody. How can you have empathy for everybody? I don't know. Maybe some people can, but I can't. Um, so the more clearly you can define your audience, the uh, the stronger your writing will be. And ironically enough, when it lands really well with a very finite and unique group of people, they tend to spread it. Uh, my my favorite example of this is, uh, you know, the Marie Kondo books. Uh, she wrote them for people who are willing to take every possession they own, throw them in a pile, <laughs> ask, inquire of each one, whether it brings them joy and get rid of the, re the rest. I'm going to say this is really a pretty small subset of the world that's really willing to do that. And yet she served them so beautifully that they spread the word and the rest of us all read these things and got something from it. She was certainly not thinking of me when she wrote that book, because I'm never going to do that. <laughs> Get rid of my books. No, back off, Marie Kondo. Um, but, but, but by serving that audience really well, she served a much larger, larger audience. She got a Netflix special. I mean, you see, the point is you're not giving up by focusing in to really, really serve well a more distinct group of people. You're not giving up audience or potentially expanding it. It's one of those counterintuitive mysteries of the world. <laughs> absolutely. And it, but I mean, at a basic level, though, I think you know, you're absolutely right. You know, when in a sort of retail sort of context, if, if you serve one customer really well, they're going to tell all the people about it. And I mean, it's, it's slightly different. It's a slightly, you know, what you're, what you're talking about is really getting. And I think I do, you know, absolutely the same with speaking. Because if you can make a deep connection with one person and lead them to have an epiphany and they remember it and it's memorable and you tell them a story, they'll share that story and they'll share your, you know, so absolutely, I think that's absolutely, absolutely right. So thank, thank you for sharing that. Okay. I have another question for you. Okay. I've got a few more, but <laughs> the next, what are your three biggest tips? And again, we might have covered some of this. So, you know, if we have just reiterate, what are your three biggest tips for turning technical and abstract into compelling and memorable? Yes. Okay. This is fun because this is, these are where I'm working with people. I, I spent my career working in technology. So it was all abstract stuff. It was all technical stuff. So first think about um, that. Think about that thought experiment, those exchanges. Abstractions, especially unfamiliar abstractions, have a large cognitive burden, right? They are they belong in the the front prefrontal cortex of our brain, the one that's also got the self-discipline keeping us there reading, thinking about what time we're going to lunch. All of those things are happening there. It's a really, really busy place. So uh, for every time you give an abstract idea, 
try to alternate in a concrete example, right? Just get rid of unnecessary abstractions and try to replace some of them with concrete. And if it's just an example, say like this, um, uh, I'm going to have to come up with a good example in my head right now, but um, you know, chemicals like dopamine you know, or, or uh, you know, something like that. Just give us an example, give us something concrete uh, because when it's something concrete, um, we can call on other parts of our brain. We can call, oh yeah, I remember that. Um, dogs like a Doberman Pinscher. Okay, well now now I can visualize a Doberman Pinscher. I've got that. Um, it, it brings in more of our brain, um, which, so point one is look at how many abstractions you have and see how much detail you can put in it in, instead. Detail is always more interesting. Second, uh, try actively to engage the other parts of the brain, like the, especially the, the sensory, the visual parts of the brain. Um, when I talked to you before about the, the thought experiment, right? With the poker chips. And I said, you know, playing with them in your hand. So you might've visualized a poker chip. You probably know what that looks like. You might have, there was a tactile thing. You might've even thought about the sound or the feel of a poker chip. You see how much more of your brain is lighting up when you're listening to that than just you know, you have a, a budget, which would be an abstraction. And you're going to, you know, it, you see, it's more interesting to bring in some sensory imagery because the brain, and this is really curious, um, the brain lights up the same way when we like say, see a, a bluebird as when we picture a bluebird. It's just, you know, it, it reacts to metaphors as if they were real inside our head. A lot of it does. And that's just fascinating. So given yeah. the choice of talking to just the prefrontal cortex of my audience or engaging with their entire brain, I'm always going to go for the entire brain. And this must obviously apply to speaking as well as writing. Correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But then you've also got, which writers unfortunately don't have, you've got the voice, you've got, you can create imagery with your, with your gestures and, and all of that stuff as well. So speakers are, are blessed with a few more tools that they can use yes. uh, to, to build that picture yes. in addition to words. It's so, and, and slides, if they're, if they're used appropriately, could actually bring that image front and center. Yeah. Cool. That's brilliant. So make sure you abstract, uh, you have concrete sort of things to go with that. Brilliant. Yes. Yeah. What else have you got? So number three, and I know, <laughs> I know, I know this is something you believe in, is to use story. Now, because story is, um, you know, all of this on steroids. Story, uh, there's a, a gentleman who did some research where he had people with wearing, you know, those functional MRIs telling stories and listening to stories, right? So this is about speaking right now, but what happens is the speaker and the listener, their brains light up in exactly the same way, like a beautifully choreographed dance. So, wow, what if I can synchronize my brain with my reader? I mean, how cool is that? Um, stories are memorable. Uh, stories they 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 bypass some of that um, that prefrontal cortex. They they just bring in everything else. They engage people, um, and they often are the path around. Um, what am I say? Preconceived resistance, um, and we can we can talk about resistance, but they're often a, a path around. Uh, some difficulty if you if you're working with an audience who may be resisting something that you're talking about in in the abstract um, to bring them a story gives them a different insight so stories make things memorable we learn through story we remember through story um, it's it's such a powerful powerful tool that said as a writer I was always intimidated by story um, because it seemed like fiction was a different thing, right? I'm a nonfiction writer and you read all these things of like, whoa, the hero's journey. And I have to have these seven phases and 
holy cow, and I have to be a master storyteller. And I'm not a um, So I was intimidated for a long time. In fact, until I was working on that book, Writing to be Understood. And I just understood how important story was through the research. It's like, I just have to get over this. I mean, I'd, I'd used it, but I just always kind of begrudgingly. Uh, so I, I set myself um, a task for a year. I got a journal on January 1st. I said, every day, I'm going to sit down and try to write a story or an anecdote or something in this, just not just a short thing. Uh, you talk about snackable stories. That's what I was trying to do. I was trying to find my little story snacks. And what happened was, and I never published any of these, but the, the process of doing this, the act of making myself look for them. This was even during the, the lockdown part of the pandemic. So I wasn't even out in the world much. I mean, I was like, I'm like going through memories. Like, oh, let me think of something. What's a story I could think of. Um, but it really brought that muscle up of, of being able to find a snackable story, if you will. I got to use that term because I love it. Snackable. Um, being able to find just a quick, uh, you know, oh, there was this time just looking for them and seeing them and, and getting to the heart of them. Uh, and spending that time doing that really changed. I can come up with anecdotes very easily. I can come up with things that, that used to be harder for me. So if you are someone who feels story resistant, give that a try. I, you don't have to do it for a whole year. You could try it for three months, but, you know, challenge yourself, spend 10 minutes, just trying to write something out. Something happened today, something, just see what you can find. Um, I guarantee you'll, you'll notice a difference. That's, that's my bit of advice. If you're, if you're story shy, that's my advice. What you've just said is is absolutely true, and I think it's an important point to make for speakers and and potentially for for nonfiction writers too. Is that I believe in business that we don't have to create stories. It's just about finding the stories, either in our personal lives or in the news or or somewhere in the or in a film or in a book. Just something that that speaks to the point that we want to illustrate to our audience, if you like the angle. So it's it's an easier job for nonfiction and speakers and all of that stuff in business because it's just about finding those stories rather than having to create them from scratch. So I love that. That's great. I like to think of myself as a curator of stories instead of a storyteller. I'm just, oh, there's a good one. Let's bring that out in case someone finds that useful. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, cool. I wanted you to share a bit more, if there is more share, on the concept of the resistant audience. Yes. So sometimes you are showing up with uh, things that people may not want to hear. And unfortunately, in the world that we're in now, that happens a lot more, you know, than um, it used to, I think. Uh, so the question becomes, how do you, how do you, show up? How do you try to change someone's mind? If it's about something trivial, uh, you know, it's probably, you know, which, which piece of software is better. Yeah. Some people are going to dig in, but most everyone else will be, yeah. Okay. Convince me. But then there are certain things that are somehow more tied to our identities and it's very much harder to, um, get people to shift those things. And what we see very often in this world, when we have people trying to speak across some kind of one of these divides, is that uh, some people show up with data. It's like, I'm going to give you more data on why this is wrong, right? Look at this, look at all of my data. And it doesn't work fundamentally. It just doesn't work. What are you thinking? That's just not how we forge those human connections. You're just appealing to that person's prefrontal cortex. And it's already like, as you said, maybe it already has the filter on. It's like, I'm not going to listen to this person because they have an agenda and their values are different. And their belief is different, whatever. Um, they're just cherry picking the data, whatever it may be. And, and we all do this. So we can all, I'm not trying to charge any blame. I mean, I feel myself doing this as well. It's very, <laughs> you know, so I'm not calling any names. We are all human. Let's just, let's, let's go with that. Um, so the question then is to be 
A, first of all, be aware when your audience might be resistant to something. First is this self-awareness. Are you showing up with something that's difficult? And if you are, you need to approach it differently. You need to um, rely more on things like story that bring in empathy, that that bypass some of that thinking uh, judgment uh, part of it. Because the idea then is not for you to tell them what the judgment should be, but for them to arrive at the judgment based on what they've experienced and what their experiences may be through story. And maybe it's not even to arrive at a judgment, just, just to arrive at the possibility of more nuance in the situation. So one thing is right, to go through story, to try to look for what you have in common, to try to look for your common objectives, to try to find what you agree on, and then build a little bit from that. And will you convince everybody? No, of course not. Um, I think this is the hardest kind of speaking, no doubt. It's the hardest kind of writing, no doubt. And it's so, so much easier in writing to just preach to the choir, right? It's so much easier to, to you're going to get more social media engagement if you go on social media and you do a big post ranting about something that you believe in strongly and all of you people who believe in it strongly, they, yeah, preach, amen. But is it effective? Does it do anything other than make you feel good? Uh, you know, that's that's really a good question and worth it. You look at your motivations for what you're writing and how you're writing. And sometimes the thing that feels good, you know, that may not be, or that gives you a lot of, Social media, yay, um, may not be the thing that's moving the needle in the way that you hope you might be moving the needle, making people think a little bit differently, maybe loosening up some of that tightness of conviction about something. Um, so that's the the resistant audience is, is the hardest challenge for a speaker, no doubt. It's the hardest challenge for a writer. The problem with the writer is we don't see them. So we we can't, we don't even know that they'll see what we do. Uh, so it's, it's, it's tricky. <laughs> it's tricky. I love that. And I, I don't know if it's the same uh, in writing, but when I talk to speakers, I talk about the audience in three segments. So there are the ones that are already sort of bought in the, you know, the choir, as you, you called it, then they're the ones that are on the fence and can be persuaded. And then the people that it's very unlikely you're going to get them certainly in one go, maybe over a period of time, like you said, to chink away is and and I will say you're aiming for those middle bunch really to get them across the line is that does that feel similar to you yes yeah I think it does and and the, the key to this is to show up in your in your writing voice which is you know analogous to a speaking voice but to show up with respect and humility um so that's the other important thing is respect and humility you're looking for common ground um, you want to appear human. You want to appear, it's so easy to hop up on our expertise high horse. And this is not the time to do it when you're trying to get the people who are in the middle ground. They're looking more for someone who is, you know, human, who is a, a companion on this, this journey. And um, I think it does hold true. We have three audiences, although it's very hard to get, you, you might have that third one in the room. It's hard for us to get the third one in the piece. Um, <laughs> so hard to get them reading in the first place. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. That was, that was great. Now, last sort of thing that I want to talk to you about before I ask you some standard questions. There are two terms, which I found interesting. Um, the need for closure and moral taste buds. Can you tell me a bit more about those? Okay, so this actually plays into the resistant audience thing. Okay, so the need for closure, and this research is fascinating, is that we have, as individuals, part of our personality is different degrees of comfort with ambiguity. For some people, and you probably know people like this, there's some people, everything's black or white, right? Everything's good or bad. Uh, it's very clear, shades of gray. Mm. Um, and people who, often these are people with a high need for closure, which is when they're in an ambiguous or uncertain situation, they want that resolved right away. Um, if there's eight candidates for a presidential election, 
they want to choose their candidate really quickly and be done, right? Um, uh, not that it's just, it's painful, more painful for them to feel like eh, maybe this and maybe that, to, to hold that uncertainty in their head. And there's actually an online assessment you can do to, to look at your own need for closure. So it's just sort of a, a personality trait. Uh, but what's really interesting is that when people who have a high need for closure make a decision in an ambiguous situation, right? Let's say that the you know the evidence is not not yet all in, but they they're just going to decide and go with it. They dig in deeper to that decision, even if the evidence kind of starts to go the other way. And that this was an older study someone did. They they took a, a an image that a drawing that could be maybe a cat or a dog. Enough of it was obscured. It's like, eh, you could look at it and legitimately think cat, dog. And then they could manipulate it either way. And so they had people look at it and decide, what do you think this is, a cat or a dog? And people would say, oh, I, I think that's a dog. And then they would gradually change it more in the direction of a cat, right? <laughs> so that, you know, eventually it's anyone else walking in the room saying, oh, nice looking picture of a cat. I mean, that's just, that's what it would be. And most, if you didn't have a high need for closure, you'd be willing to part way through and go, oh, look, that's not a dog, it's a cat. But the people who did have that high need for closure kept seeing the cat. It's not that they were arguing it was a cat while they knew it was a dog. They saw the cat. Gosh. And this is, right, this is one of those mind-blowing things because it's not that someone's just being stubborn as you show them the facts. This is how they see the world. If they had that high need for closure, they've mentally committed to this and it's what they see. Um, so this, I think it was one of the most fascinating things I'd ever read uh, that someone can be looking at it, essentially a picture of a dog and seeing a cat because that's what they had seen when it was ambiguous and they couldn't unsee that. Uh, so that's need for closure. And we all have different degrees of it. And it's important to realize, especially if you are in an ambiguous situation, you're going to have to, if you're like at work and you're talking to a group of people and, you know, the data is not in yet, you're going to have to make sure that you are figuring out how to handle the people with that high need for closure are going to want to jump to a decision and stick to it. Right. Um, I'm not sure what all the right answers are, uh, but probably you want to clarify what the ambiguity is and uh, clarify up front before we decide, let's look at what are we going to look for in the data that comes in in the next month? When are we going to reevaluate it? What might make us change our mind to try to really prime the fact that you can be comfortable with this uncertainty because we have a plan for it, right? Maybe we even have some scenarios. Maybe it's unlikely that this worst case scenario is going to happen, but if it does, let's make a little plan. And that might be the, make the people with this high need for closure a little bit more comfortable with the fact that, you know what, it is uncertain, but we've got plans. And so, you know, I can relax a little bit. Um, those are just some, I don't think those are proven ideas. Those are just some thoughts that occurs to me is how you deal with an audience that has this need for closure. If you're speaking in a situation that is still fundamentally ambiguous and things are really unknown, which is, <laughs> I don't know. The world today but <laughs> and what about moral taste buds is uh, this a quick one or is this part two for you to come back on the show <laughs> it could be it could be quick it comes from jonathan Haidt's book the righteous mind which again if you're speaking to an, a resistant audience if you're trying to change people's deep beliefs i really recommend you read this book um he talks about essential moral values and there can be five or seven of them. I forget what the numbers are. Um, loyalty, uh, you know, um, harm versus care. Uh, shoot, I, faithfulness. I, there's a whole bunch of them. <laughs> They're just blanking on them. Um, but his point is this, is that certain people just have more different ones. Let's think of them like taste buds. You know, you... You may taste primarily salt and sweet and sour, and this person here tastes also bitter and, uh, you know, umami and something else. And they can taste things that you don't. So when you eat the same sandwich, you're going to perceive it differently. 
And this is so true of, he, he talks about in the sort of American political landscape, the folks who are more in a conservative versus a more liberal mindset, the liberal mindset focuses on two or three values, conservatives on five or six. And so, of course, we're not talking about the same language when we say what's right or wrong. We're not, you know, if the liberals are not accounting for what the um, conservatives think is fundamentally important, you know, we have to address the same core taste buds if we're going to have meaningful conversations about deep topics. And, you know, these people, the conservatives will give arguments based on something that's very important to them that this liberal person may not may just discount because it's not important to them. And so it's this fundamental lack of understanding is keeping us from having more meaningful conversations that respect each other's moral taste buds because, you know, they are all, again, part of us as human beings. This, I, we can just geek out on this stuff all day, can't we? <laughs> it's fascinating, fascinating stuff. And I've not come across the sort of closed thing for so I, I just I think it's really interesting from a speaker and an author's perspective in terms of how you're managing and thinking about those things when you're talking to your audiences brilliant thank you so much for sharing some absolutely golden nuggets uh, on the show and I want to talk about the you know the books where they can get them from where people can work for you but I have maybe just a couple of standard few standard questions if you're all right for me to ask them if you've got time I'm all right let's go for it okay the first question is um what's the best thing that speaking has done for you and why uh it's I find actually when I speak to people it's another way of clarifying my ideas with an audience in the room. So it feeds my writing because I get feedback from people on what resonates and what doesn't. So I find that it, uh, it generates the writing. They support each other. The writing supports the speaking. Speaking supports the writing. Brilliant. And have you had a, like a really bad speaking gig? Is there one that you, that you think, oh my goodness, I wish that had never happened? <laughs> oh God. Um, I don't think I've had any disastrous ones, honestly. Um, I do remember <laughs> I was in early when I first wrote a book about marketing and I was doing some going around and doing the marketing things. And I was leading a panel and they, they put us on these these high stools that were like, um, I don't know. I I had a hell of a time. I felt like I was sliding off the stool the whole time. <laughs> And I was so distracted. I don't think I was a very good moderator for that panel because I'm like, <laughs> oh, trying, no. to, trying, to, trying to stay up. So that taught me first, always wear pants and make sure they're not too slippy. That's, that's Those are the two things I learned from that. You will never see me trying to speak in a dress because it's like, gosh, knows what they're going to bring for you to sit on. This was for panel discussion kind of thing. <laughs> and QA the chair, QA the chair beforehand. <laughs> right, exactly. Okay, I think this next question question is going to be a challenge for you. What's the best book you've ever read and why? What's the one that's had the most impact on your life and why? Good golly, that is a hard one. Uh, but you know, I'm going to I'm going to give you one um that kind of helped to set me off on this path, which was Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Got me thinking about the different mental systems which I ended up using a similar analogy in writing got me looking at this whole slew of cognitive biases and things and it sort of set me off on this path of really exploring the cognitive science behind communication and writing brilliant okay cool um penultimate question what's the best bit of business advice you've ever had and why oh best bit of business advice um you know it, i'm gonna say I guess it came from my husband. Um, and it was when I was thinking of writing my first book and I didn't really think, I just thought it was too far out there. And he's like, no, of course you can write a book. There's no question about that. And that confidence was, that was a, a great piece of advice. It was, it seemed scary to leave a very, um, you know, a successful freelance writing career writing in other people's voices to do some writing in my own 
And uh, so that go ahead and do it advice was changed my career, changed my life, which was really lovely. Brilliant. Okay, last question. If you could have one mentor and they could be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Oh my goodness. One mentor. That's such a tough one. I, you know, I, I almost feel like all the the people I read are mentors in in a in an absent, interesting way. Um <laughs> <laughs> You've really got me thinking. Um, so many of the writers that I admire, I would love to to mentor. It, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick a, a a dead one because I love her voice so much. I would love to know how she inhabited it, which is you know Jane Austen. I, I love her her works, but her voice as she writes is is so uniquely hers. You, you just pick it up and you know it. And, and the, the fact that she, you know, apparently wrote on little scraps of paper and then tucked it away when people came to visit. It's like, how the heck, how, how did you do that? How did you write in this environment where, you know, it wasn't something that you were supposed to be doing that you, you know, your exposure to the world was what was around you. You writing on little scraps of paper. How did you do that? I want you to mentor me to bring writing into my life the same way. <laughs> Oh, I love that. We've never had Jane Austen before. And I love the go. way that you just created that picture using your skills again. Brilliant. Cool. Listen, Anne, thank you so, so much for being so generous with everything that you've shared today. Where can people, um, well, first of all, I know you've got a number of books. Is there one that you think would be that you want to direct people to? I mean, we'll put all of them in the in the show notes, but one that you wanted to mention specifically, first of all. Well, the one that's most appropriate to our conversation today is writing to be understood what works and why. And it's a geeky deep dive into a lot of the topics that we talked about. So if you enjoyed the talk, you might find the book really uh, helpful. Um, so that that would be the, the one to highlight from this conversation. Brilliant. Uh, and if you want to find out more about you, uh, where should where's the best place for them to go? Best place to look is my website, which is my name, anjanzer.com. And there's a, a silent E on the Anne. Don't, don't neglect my silent E. Um, and you can find my books and uh, you can find uh, on the homepage there, I have a fun little quiz, which is assess the strength of your muse. So you might have fun doing that. That's, that's always entertaining. Um, and if you're interested in it, I have an every other week uh, email list about writing topics try to alternate between craft and inspiration. And once a month, I do a drawing for a writing related book to the list and things. So that's, that's a lot of fun. If you, if you enjoy geeking out on writing as I do sign up for the list, I think you'll, I hope you'll enjoy it. So thank you once again. Is there anything else that you feel that you need to say in order to call this interview complete? Just go ahead try to serve people with your writing the same way you serve them with your speaking. That's that I think is enough to put a cap on it. Brilliant. It's been an absolute delight and thank you so much again. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I loved our conversation. There you go. That was cool, wasn't it? I was chuffed. I'm not going to lie. I was geeking out in that conversation with Anne I do feel like we're kindred spirits with lots of similar approaches, as I said, for our different spaces. And I absolutely love the poker chip thought experiment as an analogy for our audience's attention. It's really cool. Uh, I'm sure that's going to stick with you, as these things do. And that's why we should be using them in our talks and, and books as well. And I'm pretty sure this is going to be a show, an episode that you're going to want to listen to more than once as it's so full of ideas and concepts that are going to be useful to you as a writer and as a speaker. Please do go and check out Anne's books if you want to know more about the concepts we covered, especially writing to be understood. And the link for that is in the show notes. And do go to our website, sign up for our email list and anything else she offers. And if you got value from her, she would love it, I'm sure, if you went and said hi over on LinkedIn and wherever else she is on social media. 
So as I said, all the links to her books and all that good stuff are in the show notes. And there are also links in the show notes to join my free Snackable Story Challenge course, which will help you find those stories for your book or your talk. Just head over to saraharcher.co.uk slash challenge to sign up. Well, that's it for the show. Thank you so much again for choosing to listen to The Speaking Club. And if you enjoy it and you got value from it, then do take a couple of minutes to leave an honest rating or review over at ratethispodcast.com slash TSC or whichever platform you're listening on. And as I always say, go the old fashioned way too and share it with people who you think might um, get something out of it too. Well, I will catch you next time. But until then, you know what I'm going to say. Don't forget to go out, grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye bye. If you want to be more memorable and engaging when you talk, then you need to share more stories. Stories can help you better connect with your audience and their problems and get them leaning in more powerfully than anything else. And short, snackable stories are great to use in pitches, Facebook Lives, podcasts, videos, keynotes, webinars, blogs, in fact, everywhere to share your message and grow your business. The trouble is that finding your snackable stories and confidently sharing them can feel like a struggle. And that struggle can slow you down or stop you in your tracks. But that's where my free Snackable Story Challenge comes in. Over the course of just five days, I'm going to give you resources, training and coaching to help you find your authentic personal stories to share and build your skills and confidence in sharing them. Not only that, but the challenge will guide you towards a tangible result at the end and assets for you to use going forward. The next challenge is starting soon. So to grab your space, go to saraharcher.co.uk slash challenge right now.